0: tuned to the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The finalists for Hawaii County Police Chief are under scrutiny. We're joined by HPR Sabrina Bowden to talk about the ongoing selection process. Good morning, Sabrina. Good
1: morning, Catherine. So
0: this has kind of been a big week. The commission's supposed mm-hmm. to decide
1: tomorrow? Yes. So they're meeting tomorrow at 9 a.m. to sort of talk about the rest of uh, the candidates. But for monday and tuesday it was two days action-packed of public testimony of interviewing the four finalist candidates um, and, you know, it's the first glimpse of what residents can see as their, ne- uh, their island's next police chief. And they're familiar faces, but each has kind of like their pros and cons. And the Hawaii County Police Commission selected candidates in a blind application process. But once applicants were revealed, uh, Chair John Birch, who is also the Executive Director of Safety and Security for the Iron Man group, he had to recuse himself Um, And Birch disclosed a long-standing relationship with candidate Ed Ignacio, who uh, that relationship includes traveling and living together. Uh, Very long-standing people in the community know that they're very good friends. Um, And Ignacio is a retired senior resident agent for the FBI. And in the 90s, he was an officer in Honolulu and Hawaii County. And he's been out of the police force for more than two decades and may need to go back for go back to the Academy for accreditation. But with the FBI, he was a response crisis planner for large events like the Olympic Games, Super Bowl, and conferences. And one of the pros that he kind of brings is an outside perspective to the job.
2: I have a different perspective from everyone here, obviously. You know, I started here, actually I started on Honolulu, came home, and then I left for the FBI. It was really hard for me to leave. But I always knew that I'd be sitting before you here applying for the chief, whether I'd stayed in this department or took my journey that I did. I have the ability to see things at a 30,000 foot level and I have the ability to bring to the table things that my other candidates don't have. I have experience worldwide and I've had, I've seen and worked with leaders at the highest levels in law enforcement.
1: And one of the other candidates is Hawaii Police Major Sherry Byrd, and she's the only candidate currently employed by the department. And while she received mostly positive testimony from residents and some officers, her ethics really came into play during uh, the second and first day of these interviews. And while acting as commander of this year's Ironman triathlon, Bird accepted a complimentary hotel room, along with a captain in the department. And Bird did not disclose the nearly $2,000 four stay and maintains that she did not violate county ethics codes. And the county code is very specific and refers to any gift that can be reasonably inferred um, to influence an officer or employee of the department. Um, and a gift can be anything from money to travel to hospitality
3: but I'm going to stand by my position that I did not uh, utilize the hotel room or perceive it to be a gift or uh, a reward for my actions acting in my official capacity uh, working this event to ensure the public safety. Um, it was in no means in any way influencing any decision that I made other than making sure the event ran smoothly or everybody was protected and I'm, you know i'm proud to say that no, you know nobody got hurt you know that was my ultimate message out to uh the personnel uh so as far as the hotel room it was uh it was there to use the restroom to maybe get a couple hours sleep
1: and that was kind of brought up to the commissioners they want to know more about what this stay included and uh some other officers as well as past um, retired officers are raising the concern that maybe we need to kind of restart that process into looking at the candidates again. Um, We also have a third candidate, Paul Applegate, who is the Acting Assistant Chief of Patrol Services for the Kauai Police Department. He grew up on the Big Island and was endorsed by several testifying residents and current officers. In 2021, he filed a complaint against current KPD Chief Todd Raybuck and the county for racial discrimination and retaliation, and that litigation is ongoing. Uh, When asked by commissioners, Applegate said he wouldn't sway, it wouldn't sway his decision making. Uh, Mark Arnold is a uh, Hawaii police officer, and he's also in the state's police union, um, but Shopo is not endorsing any candidates. And Arnold came in for public testimony, and he said as an active officer, he'd like to see Applegate's leadership to address ongoing morale and retention issues.
2: Currently, right now, on the Big Island, we have the highest number of active grievances in the state, even more than Honolulu. That is just a result of just pure mismanagement, honestly. Uh, with a leader like uh, Captain Applegate, we believe, or I believe, I should say, as a police officer, he's a type of leader that we can negotiate and resolve the issues instead of being tied up in costly grievances with the union and the county and attorneys and all of that, these things could be readily addressed that would be beneficial to both sides.
1: And the final candidate is Benjamin Moskowitz, who is a Honolulu Police Department major in the traffic division. He was also a finalist for the Oahu Police Chief job earlier this year, um, and he says that he brings an executive level skill set from his academic experience. Uh, commissioners seem concerned his academics may get in the way of the job, but he's selling—he's willing to put his education on hold. And from his experience at the Honolulu Police Department, Moskowitz says he's dealt with some higher level policy. At Lawmaking,
4: for example, is that in the traffic division, I'm responsible as well for the the DUI policy, which is a really kind of lengthy behemoth. Um, so I have a lot of experience in uh, both issuing and changing and deleting old policies, uh, and making sure that those policies interact well with each other and that they uh, reference the appropriate uh, rules.
0: So yeah, be be interesting to see you know what the commission does tomorrow morning, and uh, you know mm-hmm. what they determine uh, and. We'll see, or if they
1: restart the process, right? Yeah, it's it's really up in the air right now. Um, it's a 9 o'clock meeting, so hopefully we have a decision by the afternoon. All right. Well, thank you so much. Of course.
0: We have been talking with HPR reporter Sabrina Bowden. Uh, you can check out her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is the conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. <laughs> In today's backyard quiz, we're thinking about a familiar landmark in Honolulu and its place in classic literature. The National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific was established in 1949. Its Hawaiian name is P'u'o Oaiho'ana, later shortened to Pu'u'u'aina, which means hill of offering or sacrifice. Today, it's better known as Punchbowl Crater or simply as Punchbowl. It serves as a burial site for members of the U.S. Armed Forces who died on active duty, as well as anyone honorably discharged. It's a landmark that's recognized around the world and has appeared in numerous movies and television shows. It's also mentioned in one line of dialogue from what has been called one of the greatest novels of American literature. In it, one of the characters says in response to a woman saying she never loved him, not the day I carried you down from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry. So for today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the title and the author of this book? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag from HPR.
4: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits that help to strengthen the community and help underserved families, such as Hawaii Literacy. Nairithawaii.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Father Francis Tizo,
3: author of Rainbow Body and Resurrection. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be
4: talking about spiritual attainment and the dissolution of the material body. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the immersive exhibition, Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, exploring the human connection to nature. Now on view, details at honolulumuseum.org.
0: It was a connection with a nurse that Legacy of Life Hawaii used to work with that spurred director Felicia Wells-Williams to reach out to a mainland company called Paragonics early this year. The result is that just a few weeks ago, the first liver donation from Hawaii was successfully transported to help a mainland patient. And just before that, it was a lung that was transported from Hawaii to help someone else in need. Wells Williams is hoping this new connection with Paragonics Technologies will one day help bring more organs to Islanders in need of a transplant. You know, we
5: had seen over the last several years a real decrease in our ability to be able to transport a liver. You know, um, historically, we would do it just on ice, like in a, a special cooler, but it wasn't very often that we could get a liver just based on the amount of time it would be on ice. You know, It wouldn't be quality transplant once it arrived. So what Paragonics does is rather than having it on ice, it's still in a cooler. So it's a cooling device but it maintains a very specific temperature between 4 and 9 degrees and it is not causing any crystallization so what this new technology does is maintain a temperature between 4 and 9 degrees whereas when we have it on ice that temperature is not really controlled just like you know anything you put into a cooler with wet ice you have like a temperature that It's just, it's not a stable temperature. And so when the organ is in this specific specialized cooling device, we can be assured that there's no damage to the tissues of the liver so that successful transplant is much more likely.
0: Tell us about your history with this company, with Paragonics, and what you've been able to work up with them.
5: So they have been really instrumental in doing organ preservation, cold storage preservation. They began with the heart, and we have not, of course, been able to do that just based on the timeline with the heart, but when we were learning about what they were doing with lung and liver, it really piqued our interest, and I reached out to the company, and when they were able to share with us what they could do, presented that information to our team, provided us with the device, so we have it here. Our team is able to, when we recover the organ, package it, and then we actually hand deliver it, transport it. That liver that was transported, one of our staff members carried that on the airplane. You know, as a, and it had a seat as a passenger, and was then turned over to the team once we arrived
0: in San Francisco. And when did that happen exactly? That was just a few weeks ago. Prior to that, you were able to successfully transport a lung? Yes,
5: we had a team that came from San Francisco. They actually brought their own device. We have the device here in Hawaii, but they brought that exact device with them, and the surgeon carried it back on an airplane as
0: well. So this is kind of a game changer. Maybe we can can help more people? I mean, I don't know. Give us some context.
5: You know, I think one of the really important things To know about what we do when we talk to families about donation you know they're saying goodbye to a precious loved one and they are really giving us or or expecting us to do the best by their loved one they are entrusting us with this gift and so of course primarily our intent is to help people in Hawaii so if we recover a kidney or a liver and it can be used locally that is the intent that's you know usually the intent of the family and that is our hope as well serving our local community but in those circumstances where there is not a candidate locally who can use a transplant we have an obligation to honor that gift by making sure we can get it to someone who can use it and so what this paragonics device does is gives us a better chance of getting that organ out of hawaii and to the mainland so that it can be successfully used to save a life rather than going
3: unused
0: and then would that work both ways i mean if there are let's say organs that You know need to be matched up with a recipient could we then or have we ever gotten a lung or a liver through this paragonics process we have not yet
5: had a liver come to hawaii using the paragonics however we did have a conversation with our medical advisory board last week just about that very our medical director, Dr. Ogihara, was very interested in learning how that might help in those rare circumstances where a liver is needed in Hawaii and we don't have a donor available. So he was very interested in learning more about how that might prolong a liver so that it can come for a critically ill patient in Hawaii.
0: And for folks who don't know about Legacy of Life, I mean, we often hear, you know, that you've been involved with transplants, let's say with kidneys. Yeah, so we are the nonprofit for the state of Hawaii, responsible for organ and
5: tissue donation. And so we, our team works in all of the local hospitals. And when someone dies and they have the option to give life through organ donation, it's a member of our team that talks to the family. And then we go on to do the full workup right on up to the recovery of that gift. And then it can be utilized at the local transplant center, the Queens Medical Center. So yes, the primary organ that's needed in Hawaii is kidney. And so The majority of the donors that we have are kidney donors, many can also be liver donors and then it's the rare patient who can give the gift of heart or lungs or the pancreas. We don't have an opportunity to transplant heart or lung or pancreas currently in the state of Hawaii so when those gifts are available we are looking to get those to patients in need on the mainland. At Legacy of Life Hawaii, we are focused on deceased donation, so all of our patients, you know, the donors have died. Living donation is a really amazing opportunity where someone can give the gift of a kidney because we have two and we can function with one. So a living donor can give a kidney, and then in rare circumstances, liver donor can give a portion of their liver. I don't know a lot about the transportation of that, but it's very possible mm-hmm. that these kinds of devices can support that process. I just you know want to encourage everyone to really think about their own personal decision to be a donor, or, and if you want to be a donor, to you know, make your wishes known check the box on your driver's license, you know, share your wishes with your family so that should the time come where you can give that gift that you will, you know, especially this time of year when we think about generosity, it's really for families who are suffering a tragic loss, it's knowing that their loved one is able to help someone is often the Silver lining for a family that helps them through that loss, knowing that they were able to make something good
0: happen. We've been hearing from Felicia Wells Williams, Director of Clinical Services for the nonprofit Legacy of Life Hawaii, which assists with organ and tissue transplants at hospitals here in the islands. She tells us that this year we saw a record number of kidney transplants in the islands. <laughs> You know, January will mark a year since Maui resident David Rotz learned he couldn't donate his kidney. This was after going through extensive medical testing on Maui and the Queens Medical Center. He was—he says he was rejected in the final round due to a low kidney filtration score. But working through the surprise and the disappointment, uh, he also discovered another avenue to fulfill his commitment to sharing the gift of life. The avid tennis player and deputy director of council services for Maui County sat down with the Conversations Lillian Song to share his journey of becoming a, liver, a, a living liver donor.
6: I was momentarily distraught, but then I felt like there had to be an avenue for me to become a living organ donor. So I went online, and I found out about somebody who had been disqualified for a living kidney donation, and they turned around and became a living liver donor, which I hadn't considered before. And I looked it up and I became very impressed with the effectiveness of living liver donation on the recipients. It's a life-saving surgery, and I was also impressed with the quality of treatment that donors receive, and I really couldn't find a reason not to want to be a living liver donor. The only challenge was I couldn't find anyone in Hawaii who performs those types of transplants. So I did find the University of Southern California, which happens to be my undergraduate alma mater. They have an excellent program where they've been doing living liver donations for 24 years now with a great track record of success. It was probably January 3rd or 4th when I applied to USC. They then flew me to Los Angeles in March for two and a half days of really intensive tests I didn't get my hopes up too high this time because I'd been rejected as a kidney donor. So I was very pleased when they called me in April and approved me. And surgery was set for May, May 18th. And they had me arrive in town about a week ahead of time to go through final testing and do COVID quarantine. Had the surgery, stayed in the hospital for five nights, which is about normal. Kept me in town another nine nights just to make sure my recovery was going as planned. Thankfully, I got the green light on May 31st, flew back to Maui, and I've discovered through this process that the liver is an amazing organ. Essentially, through the transplant process, one liver becomes two. The surgical team took out part of my liver and placed it in the recipient, and that portion of my liver is now growing into a functioning liver in the recipient my liver has grown back to full size and full function
7: so it's
6: really an incredible process and i don't pretend to completely understand how it works other than i know that it provides benefit to the recipient and no loss to the donor
1: usually donors are family members or close family friends of somebody who's in need was there somebody close to you that had the need for organ donation?
6: No. I understand there's a long waiting list, which is one reason I felt compelled to get involved in the program, and it's called non-directed living organ donation, where the organ will just go to whoever needs it the most at, at the appropriate time and place. It's been described as a form of effective altruism that was one of the terms that was used when I was originally being exposed to the concept. It's a humbling experience, it's an incredible honor to be able to allow myself to be a vessel, if you will, for something that will really, really make the difference in somebody's life. And you know, all I did was say yes to go along to this ride, and then I let the medical professionals take it from there.
1: Hmm. How was the quality of life after you donated part of your liver?
6: Physically, there's really no difference. There, there was a period of recovery for about two months where I had to limit my physical activities. I had to have friends and loved ones help me carry things and things like that. But over the long term, I've noticed no difference. I would say emotionally or psychologically, there's been a difference in that I feel somehow more connected to the rest of the world by being able to participate in this process. So from my perspective, nothing but benefits. You know, if someone can't become a living liver donor, there's other ways to help. In fact, one of the screening questions was, have you ever donated blood? And the theory is, if you haven't donated blood, you're probably not ready to donate part of an organ. But most people are able to donate blood, and that's a life-saving and very altruistic gesture. And I would encourage others to consider that as a way to help folks, again, without really having to sacrifice much of anything, but having the opportunity to make a big difference for somebody else. You know, I gave something of myself in a physical sense, but I feel like I received back in in various forms much more than I gave, so again, that's another reason why I feel compelled to tell the story as much as I don't really like a lot of public attention necessarily on a regular basis, but because I have this story to tell, I'm glad for the opportunity to share my story with others. Mm.
1: And then also just hearing in your recovery, you had a very wonderful circle around you to help you heal. Who were those people that were able to support you to also follow through on this decision?
6: That's an important part is support networks. I was in a privileged position to be able to do this because as I mentioned I was off island for about 3 weeks. Thankfully, there's a state statute that provides for paid time off for state and county employees such as myself who do organ donations, so that was a huge help. There's also a national nonprofit that covered all of my travel and lodging expenses. And then My partner here on Maui, Shelly Harris, took care of my cats while I was away, which was my biggest concern about the whole process, frankly, being away for that long. So I'm eternally indebted to her for that. And in California, my Aunt Lois Humphreys and my cousin Heather Underhill live in Southern California, so they were able to visit me at the hospital and get me checked out and get me set up at a hotel across the street from the hospital. I'm deeply indebted to them for that as well. And the coworkers who covered for me when I was gone for a period of time. And just the, the moral support from close friends and just my fellow board members at Leilani Farm Sanctuary of Maui, they offered a lot of moral support along the way. So it does take a network of friends, loved ones, And of course, strangers, the the folks at USC who I'd never met before, surgical team treated me wonderfully, all offered a lot of support, of course, with their medical expertise, but also their moral support. So I felt pretty good throughout the whole process. First day or two, probably after the surgery was a little bit of a challenge. It was a major surgery. I mean, I was under general anesthesia for about six or seven hours, and just recovering from that takes a certain amount of time. And then... Your liver has to start regrowing and gaining function, but it all went really well. And I'm just happy to share my positive experience in the hopes that other folks will consider becoming living organ donors themselves.
0: Amazing generosity, this gift of life. That was H. Fear's Lillian Song and Maui resident David Rotz, who became a living liver donor on May 18, 2022. Ten weeks post-surgery, he was back at work as Deputy Director of Council Services at Maui County. He also hit a major milestone this past July, representing the Valley Isle in a state tennis tournament. He says he felt back to normal, happily playing competitively again. We will share pictures of uh, rats at the USC Transplant Institute on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today.
4: Support for HPR comes from SEEQS, the School for Examining Essential Questions of Sustainability, a public charter middle school celebrating 10 years of serving Honolulu families. Learn more at seeqs.org. American cities may have something to learn from
2: Finland. Year after year, this Scandinavian country has been reducing homelessness, not by policing or through crowded shelters, but by providing unhoused people with their own apartments.
5: It's a revolutionary change in in their lives.
2: Finland addresses its homeless
4: problem with homes. Our story, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com.
0: reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at a tax break for the island of Ni'ihau. Reporter Brittany Light joins us today. Good morning. Good morning. So you know I think many people are familiar with Ni'ihau but some may not be. Uh, fill our listeners in on uh, on this special island.
3: Sure well Ni'ihau is part of Kaua'i County although it has restricted access to um, not everyone can go there. In fact, in fact most people cannot. Uh, it is it's been owned by a single family for more than 150 years and it is home to about 40 or so Native Hawaiian families, um, about 130 people by last official count who you know have generational ties to this you know what is the smallest inhabited Hawaiian island. So it's a very unique, community. And so tell us about this tax break. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Historically, Ni'ihau has had an agricultural dedication from Kauai County. And, uh, you know, that applies to property taxes. And what happened is a couple of years ago in 2020, when the Robinson family that owns the island Reapplied for a new 20 year agricultural designation, they saw their property taxes actually quadruple from about $32,000 in 2020 to $130,000 in 2021 and in 2022. So that was a very steep and sudden um, skyrocket of their owed property taxes. Um, and, and so there's a couple reasons for this. One is that Kauai County, for the first time, started looking at the island and basically offering the agricultural designation only to areas that were exclusively used for agriculture. And again, historically, they had looked at the entire island and considered it under this agricultural designation. So what that did is, um, you know, it skyrocketed Ni'ihau's assessed value. So. Some politicians on the Kauai County Council wanted to address this. And uh, this week, the council approved legislation to impose an annual flat tax of $40,000 annually to the owners of the island to sort of bring things down to earth for them in line with what they had been paying historically. And so this ag designation,
0: I mean, they've got what, like cattle and sheep? kind of roaming the island? Is that how that works?
3: Yeah, Yeah, Niihau has, you know, a storied agricultural heritage, um, cattle, sheep, pigs. They also have some exotic um, animals, a species of antelope from Africa, for example. And agriculture used to provide pretty much anyone who wanted a job on the island with a job. Uh, But, you know, The agricultural heritage there is really challenged by a lack of water. And in uh, 1999, Ni'ihau Ranch actually closed down and uh, the the lack of water was was sort of a reason for that. So, um, you know, ranching livestock, it's still happening there. Uh, The animals free range there, so they don't have the traditional grazing areas that are fenced in, which, you know, is what you would think of traditionally. Um, but it's it's not as robust as it once was because of the water issue. It's a very arid island.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know there was a lots of talk about you know possibly creating uh, you know a, a market for I think that type of antelope the eland, I think, and you know the sheep. Whether those could somehow end up uh, on restaurant tables, right? It's a whole other industry.
3: Yeah, and you you will see sometimes uh, you know meat from Niihau on a restaurant menu. So so it's. You know, it's still an industry for them, but it has, you know, it's not what it once was. And the county, you know, as I understand, uh, you know, it was hard for them to measure just how much of the island is used for agriculture because these animals are free ranging. They sort of travel across the 70 uh, square miles of the island, you know, searching for water when they need. And, And it was sort of hard to figure out, okay, where is ag actually happening versus residential you know there's a small navy installment there um so so the county has sort of changed their their the way that they look at ag designations and and the council is really trying to to kind of fix that for the robinson family who provide housing to these native hawaiian families
0: right so i mean you, you do want to be fair because i know the the county doesn't really provide a you know all the like the trash collection or fire police road maintenance that kind of thing so yeah it i guess they're trying to Figure out you know what makes sense and and uh and, and what could work. But interesting story. So thank yeah. you very much, Brittany.
3: You're welcome.
0: That was reporter Brittany Light with today's reality check. Uh read the story at Sibylbeat.org. <laughs> Now it's time for your backyard quiz answer. We asked you about uh, Puu Waina, what is officially known as the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific, or as it's better known to many, Punchbowl. The veteran Cemetery was established in 1949. It's uh, the final resting place for notable uh, Hawaii vets like the late Senator uh, Dan Inouye uh, marks his, uh, the 10th anniversary of his passing. Uh, also, uh, astronaut Ellison Onizuka, Punchbowl is also a popular tourist attraction, and it's been referred and referenced throughout pop culture. Uh, Earlier in the show, we asked you, what classic 20th century American novel contains this line? Not that day I carried you down from the punchbowl to keep your shoes dry. Less than 21,000 copies of this book was sold while the author was alive, but since his death, it has gone on to sell over 25 million copies And continues to sell over a half a million every year the book The Great Gatsby by F Scott Fitzgerald which is the answer to today's backyard quiz the line comes from Tom when his wife Daisy says that she never loved him and our winner today Alex Town of Hilo who remembers his teacher mentioning that passage awesome Thanks so much for uh, for calling in, Alex. Well, that's today's quiz. Uh, if you have an idea for one for us, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org.
4: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall, with gift ideas from Hawaii's artists, including handcrafted jewelry, handmade pottery, original art, and custom prints. NoheaGallery.com.
0: Today on The Daily, Valerie Hopkins talks to Russians caught up in Russia's mass mobilization this fall and explains what their answers might mean for the regime of Vladimir Putin. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi, that's today, on The Daily, from the New York Times.
4: Beginning this afternoon at 1.30. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at costcohawaii.com.
0: 2022 was an exciting year for high school football in Hawaii. Kahuku High School won the state championship in the Open Division for the second year in a row, giving the public school powerhouse and even 10 state crowns all time. Two neighbor island schools, uh, Konawaina and Waimea on Kauai, won the state titles in Division I and Division II, respectively. It's the third time in the last five years that uh, non-Oahu schools have won two of the three state championships. So what does it say about the Neighbor Island talent pool and how players across the state have evolved over the years? The Conversations Russell Sobiano sat down with Harold Tanaka, the football coordinator for the Hawaii High School Athletic Association, to find out.
8: This year was the third time Two of the 3 division titles for state high school football were won by non-Oahu schools. First happened in 2017 when Hilo High won the D1 championship and Lahaina Luna won the D2. Then those teams won again in 2019. Then this year Waina wins the D1 title and Waimea on Kauai, Waimea High School on Kauai wins the D2 title, which is also the second year in a row a Garden Isle school to a uh, state championship home. Is this kind of what the HHSAA had hoped for when they expanded to three divisions in 2016? Oh yeah, it gives
2: other schools an opportunity. And you I know, mean, if you look in the past history, Lahaina was always really, really good mm-hmm. in the D two. Then they moved up to the Division one, mm-hmm. and now you see the trend where in the Division two, you know, this year Waimea was a surprise. I mean, they they've been good football for the longest time, but Kapal was always the best team now in the last maybe five, six years. But now you see Waimea starting to revitalize again. So Waimea is a really, really good team. I saw them in the championship game, and I was really impressed, you know, with the football that they play. So it's kind of neat, you know, to see these teams resurface again.
8: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. And when we think about the history of state high school football championships in Hawaii, it started out with the Prep Bowl as the unofficial state title back in the 70s. And during that time, did you get the sense that neighbor island teams kind of felt left out, that they weren't able to compete for a state title? Oh, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. They
2: have never really came out and said anything. But, yeah, of course, you know, I'm sure everybody wants to be a part to compete Yeah, for that state yeah. title.
8: And then the HHSAA implemented a state football tournament in 1999. And then that allowed for the recognition of an official state high school football champion. And then Division One was introduced a few years later and then Division Two. So now there's three divisions with three titles up for grabs. Why do you think it took nearly thirty years to kind of figure out a way to include Neighbor Island teams in the competition for a state title?
2: You know, I don't go far that far back with the former
8: football coordinators,
2: so yeah, I really can't answer that question. Okay. But okay. You know, to this day I'm really happy to see these smaller schools that win championships and I think it's a a really good opportunity, you know, for the communities.
8: Yeah, I know the communities, a lot of communities take a lot of pride in their boys playing football and, and doing well. I talked to the head coach at Kapaa last year when they won the state title and he described how much of an impact it was on the community. And it's great that 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 gets to be spread around the state now. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know,
2: I I got a chance to watch Nana Cooley twice this year, and their community really came out and supported that team. And, you know, of course, they did lose when they, you know, they did travel, but, you know, just for them to be the OIA champion and then just to have the community support was just. Great thing to see.
8: Yeah, I'm a Big Island guy. All my siblings went to Honoka'a uh-huh. and to see Honoka'a do so well this year. I think they only lost one game before they went to the playoffs, and 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 unfortunately they they uh, lost in the playoffs. But for such a small community like that, for a team to play so well and and be able to compete for a state title, I know that meant a lot to that community as well.
2: Oh yes, you know I I remember way back before the Division Two. Farrington had to play Honoka mm-hmm. in the first round, and I remember we played that game at Kealakehe, and when I saw that community come out to that stadium, I was like, "Wow, you know, this was impressive, man."
8: So, yeah, it's exciting times for uh, for football fans and and state high school football players. And 2006, King Ke Kaulike High School on Maui became the first high school outside of Oahu to win a state title when they won the Division Two championship, and then in 2017. Hilo became the first non-Oahu school to win a D1 crown. What do you think the reaction was within the the Hawaii high school football world when these neighbor island teams won these state titles? Well, I, I think
2: um, you know now, like in the preseason, the outer island schedules they do schedule the the Oahu schools. Mm-hmm. You know they are trying to raise the bar. You know and they've done a really good job. You know they've scheduled teams on the mainland, and you you can see it in the preseason schedule. So for us, you know, you see the scheduling and, and everybody's just getting better. So, you know, I mean, it's it's a great thing to happen for yeah. us in football in Hawaii.
8: And, and when you kind of look at high school football over the last handful of years and then you look at how much better professional players are getting, does it seem like the evolution and the improvement of players across the board continues to just get higher and higher? Oh,
2: yes. I think Hawaii is... a
8: Heavy recruiting pot now for the major colleges.
2: I mean, now we have Alabama coming in town mm-hmm. and SEC schools. Before, SEC schools wouldn't even bother with Hawaii. Mm-hmm. But now they're knocking on doors. So you, you can see the talent level. And you know what? Too, a lot of the kids go to camps mm-hmm. on the mainland, and that's where they start to get recognized. And that's how the word gets out about Hawaii having really good football players, too
8: been exciting to see local players on national championship teams you know to a huge example right i mean
2: i love watching him sundays
8: yeah yeah Yeah. so last year Kapaa earned the garden isles first state football title Lahaina luna has won several right correct hilo high school and konawana high school from the big island have won state titles in recent years then there's vai seomalu who became the first Moloka'i high school player to earn a D1 scholarship and now plays at Kansas State University. What do you think this all says about the talent pools on the neighbor islands? Oh, it it, it has really grown. Mm-hmm. I mean,
2: they understand what it takes, to, you know, to get to the the next level and the kids are buying into the, you know, the off-season training mm-hmm. and just taking care of business and and you know, first it's academics, and then it's you got to put in the work mm-hmm. if you want to play college football at the next level. And they're doing it. I mean, that kappa team, had there's an offensive lineman at Oregon, and I was impressed with him.
8: The availability of training seems to have increased as well. I think not just from within the school, but there seems to be a lot more independent or, or private opportunities to be able to hone your skill. Oh, yes. You know, I've seen
2: that probably in the last five years really take off. I mean, we have quarterback camps every weekend at our at our field, you know, people working with quarterbacks. And then we had linemen camps every weekend at our school. So you know it's out there and kids are coming out, kids are putting in the work. So yeah. that's a real good thing to see. And we have kids from the outer island flying in just to attend these camps.
8: It's a nice thing to see. I mean, it's, oh, exciting. A lot of kids getting a lot of opportunities across the board. My son graduated from Kaiser. And he's been playing up at a D2 school in North Dakota for the last couple of years. Started his first game this past season at right tackle. Right. And uh, so, you know, I mean, it's you know, it's maybe just one step up from high school as opposed to you know playing in in the SEC. But it was exciting to see him get on the field. Hey, guys, get drafted out of those conferences.
2: So you know what? It doesn't have to be Alabama. You know what I mean? You can play at a D2 school and still make a name for yourself. Mm-hmm.
8: Do you think there's anything the HHSAA can improve in the state football tournament that would create a more even playing field for smaller schools or schools on the neighbor islands? Would it be worth creating something like a division 2A for schools like Pahoa or Kau or Pac-5 and Molokai High School? You know, that's
2: a tough one to answer because I think some of it would be financial mm-hmm. and it might affect our Title IX Oh, because right, you're right. Because you're going to create more opportunities for the boys mm-hmm. and not create enough opportunities for the, the female sports. Yeah. And that might be a big hurdle to, to, to
8: have to uh, face you. That's a good point. We celebrated the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And so I can see how that has to factor into a lot of decisions that are made that affect football teams. Because it's important to continue to create opportunities, equal opportunities for women as well correct so that's probably the biggest hurdle is there anything you know that you wanted to share just about high school football in general where we are in the state how our communities embrace this activity for the boys no I'm I'm just uh, I find it a nice opportunity to be able to
2: uh, speak with you about high school football and you know I see it really uh, growing
8: and Just hope it keeps growing. Right on. Well, thanks so much for your time. Harold, appreciate you coming into the station. Thank you, Russell.
0: That was HHSAA football coordinator Harold Tanaka talking Hawaii High School football with the Conversations Russell Subiano. Guess what? We're out of time now. But up tomorrow, uh, it's an Aloha Friday show, a Hanho show around music. We revisit some of our favorite interviews with musicians and music makers. Got questions about something you heard on our show? Call our Talk Back line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And want to listen back to something you heard? Find The Conversation podcast on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere you tune in. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.